The second reading comes from Matthew's Gospel, the Beatitudes, one of the most familiar texts in all of our Holy Scriptures. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week is not one that I would have described as blessed. On Monday, while changing the radiator in a car with one of my daughters on the streets of West Baltimore, we ducked down as we heard gunfire ring out with so many rounds, I was sure that someone was dead. Three people shot, including a boy just a few years younger than my daughter. On Tuesday morning, the mayor stood me up along with a group of build leaders who had arrived early in the morning to use our time efficiently for what we had been told would be a strategy session for leveraging statewide Kerwin education funding. Blatant disrespect. The next day, a friend shared that she had lost two friends this week recently to overdoses. More senseless loss of life. Our governor and our president had once said that attacking opioid addiction was a top priority, but I haven't heard anything from e either one of them recently. And in my own southwest Baltimore neighborhood, a new heroin market is so alive and well that someone actually posted it on Google Maps. On Friday, I had a frank conversation with a high-level city employee who confirmed for me that our city management is so broken that even if we were all to agree on the best policy directions forward, we are not in a position to implement those policies in any meaningful way. And then there is that little trial of our president. 
I never thought I'd see the day when a president using his office to solicit foreign governments to help him win an election would be treated by some as not that big of a deal. I'm concerned about all of these things, but perhaps my biggest area of concern was noticing the changes in my own reactions to all of this news. Where there used to be anger and urgency, now there seemed like something of acceptance of the unacceptable. Too blessed to be stressed? Maybe. Or maybe it's like I've just discovered something like a cancer of cynicism that has been growing undetected until just this week. I spend enough of my time listening to many of you all to know that I am not the only one feeling this way, which adds to my concern. When anger moves to cynicism, theologian Jürgen Moltmann once said, the death of the church is near. Is the death of the soul near too? I wonder if Jesus felt that kind of cancer of the soul creeping into the body of his disciples on that day when he took them up the mountain and sat down to teach them. He had seen the crowds, according to the text, more need than anyone could be expected to satisfy. And instead of putting his nose to the grind, as many of us often do, he decided to take his team up the mountain. Think about that for a moment. Before he took any meaningful action to address the urgent neediness before him, he got together his top leaders to teach, to recenter them, and maybe to be recentered himself. He told them first about God's blessings. Blessed is a word that is used so often, especially in our city, that it's worth reminding ourselves of what it actually means. It's closely connected to those deep theological terms of shalom in the Hebrew scriptures and salvation in the New Testament. It's not a superficial happiness, but a deep commitment, freedom, and peace. One scholar describes the blessedness that Jesus articulates as being near God, being in sync with God, snuggling up close to truth, committed to follow in Jesus' way. It's important to return to these root understandings since so many of us have at times thought about the call of Jesus as a burden rather than the place where we are promised a deep commitment freedom, and peace. We think about the call to be in solidarity with the poor and suffering mostly as a burden, not as the place where God tells us we find life. We think about the call to extend forgiveness as something that goes against our own interests, not something that brings us an extraordinary kind of peace. We think about peacemaking as something that puts us at risk, not something that gives us a real hope of a future. 
Sometimes we need to get away from the tyranny of the urgent, go up on the mountain, away from the daily pressures, sit down with Jesus and listen. There is life to be found here with him. Of course, the Beatitudes are not only here to remind us of how much we need God's grace. They are statements that tell us who receives that grace. Not everyone, according to Matthew. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for justice, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. It only seems like good news if you find yourself in one or more of these categories. Those who are poor in spirit, both those being crushed by economic poverty and those who are affluent but know their dependence on God. Those who mourn, who can, in Richard Rohr's words, enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and not try to extract themselves from it. Those who are meek, that is, those who trust in God's power, even when struggling against powers and principalities that seem so much greater. And those who hunger and thirst for justice, that is, those who hunger for things to be put right and then give their energy and time to make it so. These are all people who know that they need God desperately. And one only needs God's grace if your priorities are aligned with God's priorities. If you are in solidarity with the pain of the world, you are going to need God's hope. If you trust in God's power instead of those of the markets or political power, you will need God's hope. And if you hunger for the things that God hungers for, then you will suffer each time another bullet leaves the gun, every time another child is lost to the streets, every time our governments fail to do their job to make our communities whole. Ironically, ironically, according to our faith, this place of neediness is really the only place that hope can be found. Marilyn Robinson writes that hope implies a felt lack, an absence, a yearning. Hope, she says, is love projected forward. It is what love would be fully realized, which is why we only experience hope in absence. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. Hope is only felt as absence, which she says is what distinguishes it from optimism. And this is why the alarm bells go off whenever I detect anything that seems like cynicism in myself. Cynicism is the easy way out, or so it seems. If you can't get your hopes fulfilled, the poor get worse. Those who mourn suffer more losses. Those who are vulnerable become even yet more vulnerable. Then you just dumb down your hopes so you don't ever have to be disappointed. 
or more to our situation. The streets get rougher, the addicted and those who are distressed die more often, our democracy gets more inept, and the easy way out is to adjust our expectations, recalibrate our standards away from God's dreams and more to what actually seems possible. Realign your life so that you don't need hope. You don't need faith. You don't need God. Let your anger over the world as it should be cool to the acceptance of the world as it has become. There is a different way. And it is not working harder, at least not initially. It is going up on the mountain to make sure you are viewing the world the way Jesus sees it, not as void of God's blessings, but filled to the brim with them, not as full of people who are not wealthy enough or good enough or happy enough to change their surroundings, but blessed by God in the midst of their not enoughness, not as hopeless in our inability to change what needs to be changed, but on the right track every time we mourn the gap between what is and what we know can be. When we see the world through God's eyes, we see that we are blessed indeed. We are blessed because God loves us and adores us. We're blessed because God has given us enough resources to be shared. We're blessed because God is a forgiving God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're blessed because God is a justice-making God, always working to broaden the circle of who has enough. We're blessed because even when we lack, we see that the hunger there is a product of God's vision shared with human beings who are made in God's image. And when we know that blessing deep down in the core of ourselves, then we are able to go distances beyond what we thought was possible, be a part of change beyond what we imagined, transform our world in all the ways that some of us may have given up on. David Lowe's, when he was in graduate school, always felt uncomfortable when one of his teachers, he says, Dr. Cleophas LaRue, would regularly address him as Dr. Lowe's. So uncomfortable was he that he finally said to his teacher, but Dr. LaRue, I haven't earned my doctorate yet. I don't think that you should call me that. Dr. Lowe's, he patiently responded, in the African-American church, we are not content to call you what you are, but instead call you what we believe you will be. Love projected forward. Siblings in the faith, if there is one thing that these times can teach us, we can't change anything that is hard to change and therefore worthy of our lives without God's power. 
Don't lose God's way of seeing the world. Don't dumb down your expectations into small boxes that have become so much a part of our cynical status quo. Hold on to that vision and pay attention to that grief that is there in your gut. It is the place where hope is born. Love projected forward in ways we don't yet see.